maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. Your support helps us to produce more amazing podcasts, stage more live debates each year and it will bring you even closer to the world's most brilliant minds. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. We're continuing our series looking at 75 years of Indian independence today. In this episode, we're discussing the rise of Hindu nationalism with journalist and global opinion writer for the Washington Post, Rana Ayob. Our host today is Kavita Puri broadcaster and author of the book and radio series Partition Voices, which explores the experiences of British people originating from the Indian subcontinent who witnessed the 1947 partition of India. Here's Kavita with more. 
At midnight, August the 15th, 1947, the Indian Independence Bill came into force, ending almost 200 years of British colonial rule on the subcontinent and calving out the new independent dominions of India and Pakistan. In the first few years of independence, India was plunged into chaos, reeling from high levels of poverty in the aftermath of a bloody partition. But fast forward 75 years and the country has transformed. In September 2022, the economy overtook its former colonial ruler, Britain, to become the fifth largest economy in the world. Education and literacy rates have progressed, witnessed by the high numbers of Indians studying at elite universities. The diaspora are occupying senior roles in the world's biggest tech companies, including Google and Microsoft. And the country is quickly becoming an important geopolitical actor, spending around 76.6 billion on its military. But some problems persist. Religious conflict between Hindus and Muslims is on the rise. Democracy, by many measures, is in decline. In this new series, India at 75, we'll explore the biggest issues facing India 75 years after its independence and where the country will be headed in the next 75. Tonight, we'll be discussing secularism and the rise of Hindu nationalism with Rana Ayub. Rana is a multi-award-winning journalist. She's a global opinion writer for the Washington Post. She's one of India's most high-profile critics of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. In 2016, she self-published Gujarat Files, a controversial book about the 2002 riots in which around a thousand people, mostly Muslims, were killed in Gujarat. Because of her journalism and speaking out, she's faced death and rape threats online. The UN Human Rights Office has called on authorities in India to act urgently to protect her. In 2022, her bank accounts were frozen and she was prevented from boarding a flight from Mumbai due to an investigation into tax fraud, which she says is politically motivated. As The Atlantic describes her to her detractors, Ayub is nothing more than an activist defaming India's image on the world stage. To her supporters, she is a rare voice speaking true to power. Thank you, Rana, and welcome. Thank you so much, Kamika, for having me here. India's constitution, as you well know, was drawn up in 1950 after independence, and it enshrines India as a secular Democracy, those were the very ideals that Nehru spoke of on that famous 15th of August 1947 address. Do you feel that's at stake now? Well, we are living in India on the 75th year of Indian independence. Jawaharlal Nehru was um, absent from the Prime Minister Narendra Modi, from Prime Minister Narendra Modi's own election day speech. He has been removed from all government uh, publications on Independence Day. So that kind of explains in a, in, a, in a way where India is headed, where secularism seems to be a terrible word. It seems to be a, a word that a majority of Hindu Indians detest because um, as many of them say that, you know, Muslims have 57 countries to go to. Why India? Leave India to the Hindus. So, uh, we have, at, on the 75th year of Indian independence, I think we have many reasons to worry. And the foremost being the secular values, which India took great pride in, the pluralism, the diversity. I think that is under attack. And I say this not just as a Muslim, um, a practicing Muslim in India, but as a journalist and a citizen of this country who has believed in the ideals of the constitution of India. Do people even talk about or do they use the word secularism in political discourse? Well, there was a time that we used to, uh, where secularism was a word that would often be used by leaders in power 
to uh, to espouse a, a pluralistic approach of governance. But ever since Mr. Modi has come to power in the last eight years, um, secularism has been conveniently uh, absent from from discourses that are enabled by the state. So. Um, uh, secondaries, secularism as a term is now only relegated to editorials written by people uh, who, who, who want to keep the idea of India alive. Uh, secularism is an idea, is something that is only cherished by those who, um, you know, who have been standing up against the divisive and bigoted politics um, that India has been witnessing. There are 200 million Muslims in India, around 14% of the population. Just Give us a, an overview of how the government has been cracking down on, on Indian Muslims. Well, Kavita, to begin with, as soon as Mr. Modi came to power, I think that one of the, uh, one of the most disturbing features was the lynching of Muslims on, the, on alleged uh, allegations, of um, allegations of consuming beef. And I remember this case of um, Pehlu Khan and Ikhlaq back in 2015 when when they were murdered for allegedly consuming beef, when the cops went to their place to investigate, they checked the refrigerators of the deceased to check if the meat was actually beef or you know other flesh. So that and and one of the cabinet ministers in Mr. Modi's government, an important cabinet minister, later went on to honor and garland those people who had killed these Muslims on allegation of consumption of beef. That's how we start with. I mean, this this attack on the cultural and dietary habits of Muslims. Um, then, of course, you have the triple talaq bill in which triple talaq was criminalized. I mean, I, I mean, for the outside world, Mr. Modi presented it as an attempt to liberate Muslim women, which a lot of uh, saviors in the West have done in the past. Everybody wants to liberate what they see as backward um, Indian Muslim women. But what they were actually doing, and which we now see um, a clear picture, is they were attacking Muslim religious practices to make it, uh, to criminalize Muslim men and throw them behind bars. I mean, as a Muslim woman, I completely detest the practice of triple talaq because it is not something that even Islamic countries practice. But here, the Modi government was not doing it with the intent to save women, if Muslim women. If that was the intent, then Bilkis Banu, uh, a victim of the Gujarat genocide of 2002, um, who was gang raped and her family members killed, her killers would not be out in remission. Um, so, of course, um, the triple talaq bill, then the Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, which basically uh, discredits, uh, delegitimizes um, Muslims as citizens of this country. Um, so, India will, India's, according to the act, citizenship will be given to persecuted minorities from neighboring countries except Muslims. And now the Citizenship Amendment Act along with um, the population bill, seeks to delegitimize and throw out Muslims who have been living in India for decades. So these are the practices that are being brought, um, that are being brought in day in, day out. Your uniform civil code, uh, the, the Babri Masjid, uh, the Babri Masjid uh, judgment, wherein while an earlier Supreme Court judgment come, uh, agreed that the demolition of the Babri Masjid was a criminal act, it goes on to give the masjid premises 
the Hindu nationalist and the Prime Minister of India in the middle of COVID-19 does a Bhumi Pooja, lays the foundation stone of the temple. Um, this It does not stop with Babri. It goes on with, now we have the Gyan Vyapi proceedings where Hindu nationalists and Hindu organizations are saying that Beneath many other temples like Gyanvapi, there is a Shiv temple beneath the mosque. So every day in India is being made into a nightmare for Muslims, their religious practices. Look at the hijab ban, while Iran, in women in Iran are fighting to not wear the hijab, this, this hegemony of men. In India, the bodies of Muslim women are being used as a playground for fascists where Muslim women in Karnataka who want to wear it as a part of their fundamental right to wear it are being stopped, are being heckled by Hindu nationalists from going to school just because they are wearing a hijab. So these are just a very few examples on the state-enabled, mm. sanctioned Islamophobia in India, which is which directly threatens the 220 million Muslim population in India, the third largest in the world who now feel like victims in their own country. They don't feel like equal citizens. Well, it's interesting you say victims in their own country, because if you go back 75 years, one of the main arguments for Muhammad Ali Jinnah made when he was arguing for the creation of Pakistan was that he felt that the Muslim minority then wouldn't be protected by the Hindu majority. Uh, and, and, I, and I suppose every Muslim family in India had to make a decision in 1947 whether to stay or whether to go. And I suppose this is perhaps what they, what they feared would happen. But your family made that decision to stay. Just tell me a little bit about that. Uh, you know, my father, Kavita, is Midnight's child. He was born in 19... As the same month and the same year that India got independence. And I've often mm. asked this question of him. I said, Abba, what... what? I mean, as much as I love my Indianness and I'm proud and I... There's nothing else that I would... I mean, there's nowhere else I would have wanted to, to be born in whose citizenship I would seek. And I, would, I wanted... I was very curious as to why my family and my forefathers decided to stay back. And he said... This is our home. And you don't leave your home. You don't leave your the land of your forefathers just like that. And that's the only answer. That's an answer that I've been getting from my uncles and aunts. So I've known. He said, I mean, I mean, each time I would ask them, why didn't our family go to Pakistan? They would say, why Pakistan? We are North Indians. Uh, our family has lived in Uttar Pradesh. Our generations of our family has lived in Uttar Pradesh for uh, it's a North Indian state for there, for uh, for generations. Why would we leave? Why would we be uprooted from our culture and our land? So that's the belief with which Muslims decided to stay and which is precisely why. And we stayed here because of the assurance given by leaders like Mahatma Gandhi and Nehru and Ambedkar that we will be safe here. This is going to be our country. We are going to have equal rights, just like our Hindu counterparts, our Christian counterparts. But today, uh, like you said, Jinnah's fears, I would I hate to say this, uh, is, is coming true. Not that I agree with Jinnah, but Mr. Modi is trying to prove him right. Mr. Modi is trying to prove the detractors of Gandhi and Nehru right by treating Muslim minorities in India as second-class citizens in their own country. Do you think your family has ever regretted that decision? Never. Till this day. Till this day. I don't think a single family member of mine None of us ever, I mean, whether it's me or my siblings, we are such desis that we never even went to universities abroad to get higher education. We are 
I can't even begin to tell how much, I mean, it's, it's, it's a shame that we have to prove our patriotism and love for the nation that me and my brother and my nieces and my nephews uh, feel for this country, uh, the goosebumps that we get when we listen to speeches during the independence movement. But it's unfortunate mm. that my nieces are still being asked in good humor in their schools uh, if they are going to support Pakistan during an India-Partition match. Uh, India-Pakistan match. So nothing yeah. has changed. When I was in school, I would be asked this question in good humor. So which team are you going to support today, India or Pakistan? I mean, that India-Pakistan match is a great test of patriotism for Muslims, right? Nothing has changed today. My nieces uh, come home some days with tears in their eyes saying, you know, it that they do feel the othering, that they do feel the othering in their classrooms. And it is a feeling that I resented back in the day when I was a student and I thought things would change in a modern India. But unfortunately, we are only regressing backwards. Um, I want to look back before Modi was in power and the dynamic between the Hindu and Muslim communities then, because there was also a, a very pivotal moment when you were nine that made you feel other. Yeah. You know, Kavita, at no point when I was growing up did this idea of Hindu and Muslim and us or them ever <laughs> I mean, we were the only Muslim family in a predominant Hindu locality where my father was, uh, you know, was a government school teacher. So all the locals would come for admissions to their school on Teacher's Day, on Guru Purnima, which is the day they, you know, they, uh, they worship teacher. They would come and uh, tie a thread to his hand uh, as, as the teacher, as the guru. So we felt so needed and, 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 and respected. On Diwali, we had more fun as opposed to Eid because... Uh, we would be everywhere. We would be at our neighbor's house preparing uh, and preparing for the festivities. So at no point did we as Muslims feel that we were ever threatened or I actually, none of us were really conscious of our Muslim identity because we were Indians more than anything else. But on 6th December 1992, it's something that each time when I speak about it, I get goosebumps because that's not an age. I was nine. My sister was 14. My siblings were very young. The age where you are, you know, dealing with romanticism of your country and everything beautiful, you are, you are, you have to deal with a harsh reality. On that morning, a, a poster was posted, a pasted on the door of our house, which said, Chalo Ayodhya, Che December, let's go to Ayodhya on the 6th of December. And my, our neighbor, she, there's this woman, amazing woman, who was mom's best friend. She came and said, do you know, Didi, are you, do you, do you, uh, do you smell the whiff from Babri that is that has that ha, that is all over the city and and my mom got in and she said got into the room and she said I don't she's, it's not her the language that she's speaking is not her and at a very early age we realized, we knew about the Rath Yatra that that leaders Hindu nationalists are going around uh, talking about the demolition of a mosque and overnight there was a feeling of fear that I had never experienced before. And before we knew it, a mob of Hindu nationalists were on the way to our house to pick me and my sister, because that's what we do during communal riots. We have witnessed that women are, women end up becoming like the playground for these mobs, right? If you, if you, if you assault them sexually, then you feel like you've assaulted the entire family. Um, so a Sikh family, a Sikh neighbors, they rescued me and my sister. We escaped the house in the middle of the night uh, through, the, through the window of our bathroom. And we stayed with a Sikh family for months as refugees. And I remember when, when friends would visit the Sikh family in their house, it, was, it used to be Lodi, which is a festival 
in Punjab and they would say, who are these girls? And the Sikh family would say, oh, they're refugees. They're Muslims. That was not an age. I was nine. And that was the first time uh, I, was, I was made to feel an other in my own country. Uh, I've repeated this story many times. And each time I repeat it, it's, it's, it's a very unpleasant feeling because I thought it's not an age where you actually burn posters of radical speeches, you know. I used to burn speeches by Hindu nationalists as a form of um, my own resentment. I would cry and I would talk to Allah saying, why is this happening to us? And I had no access to my family members. We didn't have a phone. We didn't have, um, back in the day, we didn't have a landline. So it, it was months before we got to know that our family members were still alive. And from then on, the decline of India is consistent and it only gets worse. And in the last eight years, it's, it's it's beyond our own worst expectations of the othering of Indian Muslims. And, and when you were 19, um, before we get on to 2014, when the BJP uh, took power, you were a relief worker in, in Gujarat when, when the riots happened. Um, just explain briefly what you, you, you witnessed there. So um, I used to feel very helpless because at the age of nine, when this mob came and we were all helpless and we took refuge, I remember the 2002 riots, the communal riots, where the first televised uh, to, uh, 24-hour uh, te- uh, news channels were, um, had made their mark in India. It was the first fully televised communal riot in the history of India. And I remember watching it uh, along with family members and fear. That was also the year my brother got married. And he was, I remember the festivities were on and, and my father would say, should we call off uh, the wedding? Because it looks like it's going to be a repeat of what we saw in 1993. And, and we lived in fear. And at that point of time, some of my friends and her, sister and, her fam- and her siblings were going to Gujarat for relief work. They were affiliated, affiliated with the Red Cross. And they said, uh, do you want to come along? I was only 19 and I was seen as this really introverted, shy kid. And I don't know, I felt that that was the moment I did not want to feel helpless. I wanted to get rid of the helplessness that I had felt all my life. So I went to Gujarat by a train. I told my family that I'm going on a trek. We went to Gujarat and what I saw in 2002 in Gujarat in the relief camps, the stories that I heard from Muslim women who were gang raped, from children who were orphaned, was an exact repeat of what a glimpse of what we got in 1993. And the same narrative, Narendra Modi, a Hindu leader who thought that Islamists were going to overtake India. And it was was so visible that not a single day was the chief minister of Gujarat, Narendra Modi, out on the field asking Hindus to stop the violence or, or giving a speech or just coming out and asking for peace to be maintained. And it was a scar for me. It scarred me for life. And which is why Gujarat, the, the genocide of Gujarat, it has remained a memory with me that is a constant, um, that finds constant mention in my articles and op-eds because that is not just the journey of communalism and far-right nationalism in India, but it also start, tracks the journey of Narendra Modi's leadership as this Hindu nationalist leader who wanted to give Hindus their pride of supremacy in India. And that's where we are today. Well, well it's worth pointing out at the time he was chief minister and that, that led to you becoming a journalist. And you were involved in an undercover sting um, when you were working for a, as an investigative reporter um, where you infiltrated Modi's administration 
undercover. Um, but interestingly, the, the the journal that commissioned you to uh, and supported you during those many months of the sting didn't publish it, and you had to wait a, a number of years, and and you had to actually self-publish it yourself. Uh, that became the book, The Gujarat Files. Um, and you made some pretty damning allegations against Modi and his allies and their complicity. But it's also worth pointing out Modi has always denied these allegations and he has never been charged. And the Supreme Court said there was no evidentiary value to the transcripts and no court has, has ever actually asked for the audio tapes to investigate these claims. I mean, how do you respond to all of that? Two clarifications, Kavita. Uh, one, the Supreme Court of India in an open court in 2004 had called the Modi government modern-day Neros who looked the other way as innocent children, houses and women were being gang-raped and killed. That's the observation of the Supreme Court of India in 2002 by Justice Arujit Pasayat, who was later maligned by the Modi, Mr. Modi and his, uh, and his, and his leadership. The second, the the, uh, uh, the Supreme Court judge who said that my book is based on surmises and conjectures is a Supreme Court judge who has not even read my book on record, nor has asked for the tapes of my recordings. And this is the this is also the Supreme Court judge who has later, when he retired, gone on to say that Prime Minister Modi is the greatest leader in the world, not casting aspersions, but just to put put this on record. Um, when I went undercover in 2010, this was the same year that why my investigation had landed one of the key ministers of Mr. Modi's government, Amit Shah, who's now the most important man in India, the Home Minister of India behind bars, for extrajudicial murder of Muslims, Muslim women, including a woman called Kausar B, who was raped, sedated and killed. I went undercover because the story of 2002 Gujarat riots, I think the evidences in the riots were not forthcoming. And Mr. Modi was being investigated by commissions of inquiry, but he had developed amnesia. So had the officials who were being investigated by commissions of inquiry. All the officers of Mr. Modi's government who were questioned about the Gujarat riot developed amnesia. They, all of them said consistently that they do not remember the chain of events. For me, at that point of time, as a journalist, it was important to go undercover when I'd exhausted all other forms of a journalistic resources to go undercover and get the truth from these officials. So I did a sting operation where I wore eight cameras on my body uh, as a Hindu nationalist, posing as a Hindu nationalist, Methli Tyagi, and met Mr. Modi's rank and file, including the Home Secretary, the, the Chief of Police, the Chief of Administration, and the Home Secretary of Gujarat, Mr. Ashok Narayan, and said on my sting camera that Mr. Modi benefited from the Gujarat riots of 2002 and that he did not call the for the forces, that he suspended officials who were saving Muslim lives. This is all on record. The book, I published the book in 2016 as a self-published book. All the transcripts of the tapes are out in the book. Till today, it's been six years since I published the book. Not a single official who I have quoted in the book, whose transcripts I have published, has gone on to say that I did not say this, which means that everything that I have put on record, in an ideal world, the Supreme Court would ask for the tapes of these conversations to investigate. But these are the times we live in. You are very outspoken. Um, the work like the Gujarat Files ruffles a lot of feathers. Um, you have been harassed. You have received death threats rape threats, um, a deeply disturbing deep fake pornographic video of you was shared online, your personal details were made 
public, you're paying a very high personal cost. What, what is that like? What is the effect on you? Well, Kavita, I arrived in Chicago two days ago to 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 spend three months at the Institute of Politics, and as and I thought that as soon as I get here, I might get a relief from all that the harassment that I, that is being inflicted on me. But today, when I opened the newspapers, I saw the Indian Foreign Minister give an interview in Washington D.C. that publications like the Washington Post are running a propaganda against the Indian government in the West, and he. Uh, in as many words pointed out to my uh, my writings in the washington post as an opinion writer so that's that's the topmost officer and this is just an everyday um uh everyday part of my life just before i was leaving for chicago a court summons was issued to me in a in a uh, about an investigative story that i did in 2008 about hindu nationalists and their uh, and their involvement in terror attacks uh the complaint by the hindu nationalist against me says that my journalism is influenced by my faith and the court has initiated proceedings against me in that case 16 years later just as i was about to leave this is just a very small window into the world of the harassment that i have faced multiple multiple um publications have have researched about the kind of threats that i received 8.5 million tweets registered against me in 3 months uh emerging out of india calling me a jihadi jain my my image morphed on a porn video circulated all over the internet um alleged photoshops with photoshops with leaders of the opposition photoshops with critics of the government saying i have sexual relationships with people my bank account frozen for relief work that i did for covid-19 victims aspersions cast on my integrity there is not a single thing that exists in the playbook of the government that has not been used against me or my family members stopped at the airport from flying out of india to speak about freedom of speech and democracy so every day i pay a cost that nobody really knows and a cost that i do not speak about to the world because i feel that i do not have to make myself the story but unfortunately uh in 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 modi's india i am the hunted and the hunter god knows i mean this is what they say a lot of times but i do feel i do feel that i some days it gets exhausting but that's the life i've chosen for myself and that's the india we are living in where this where those who bear witness to the to the india story every day are being targeted relentlessly some of our best activists and journalists are behind bars mohammad zubair was behind bars for almost a month for a tweet for an innocuous tweet that he put out 5 years ago about a film for that he was behind bars for at least 1 month gauri lankesh a journalist was murdered by allegedly by hindu nationalists outside her house and gauri had translated my book gujarat files in kannada language and we were supposed to do a book launch in karnataka of gujarat files with her and she was killed weeks before that so this is an everyday life of people who choose to speak safura zargar a journalist sorry an activist from 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 jamia she was pregnant when she was arrested and today um a few weeks ago her degree from her her phd degree has been cancelled by jamia millia islamia it's a price each one of us is paying and we continue to pay advertising hasn't always had the best reputation whether it's playing on our most primal fears encouraging needless consumption or perpetuating damaging stereotypes it can sometimes feel that the ad industry has a lot to answer for but can advertising's immense power actually be used for good 
In this new series, produced by Intelligence Squared in partnership with Havas US, two of Havas's chief creative officers, Myra Nussbaum and Dan Lucy, talk to the people who are harnessing the power of advertising to help people and the planet. In each episode, Dan and Myra will speak to the creatives and marketeers who are using advertising to combat misinformation, racial inequality, gun violence and other blights on our world. Search Advertising Will Save Us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and join us as we ask, could advertising help save us after all? Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And is that why the media in India, the, the, the kind of, uh, for the large part, don't report on the kind of stories that you are reporting from? Is there a self-censorship going on? Well, I feel a lot of people say that the media in India is ideologically bankrupt. They are bigoted. But I feel that the media in India is actually quite opportunist. They are people who want to save their jobs. There are people who want to bask in the in in uh, in the favors lent by the government of the day. These are people who um, who are happy to dog whistle against the two twenty million Muslim population as long as they get promotions in their respective jobs. And then these are the very editors and mainstream publishers who will reach out to me saying, "Rana, you don't have loans to pay, but we have loans to pay, and we have to look our children." My question to them is. If you had loans to pay, then why be a witness? Why be a journalist in a country like India whose story needs to be told to the world? Mr. Modi brought more than 10 cheetahs on his birthday, which was drummed down as some kind of an achievement. And I, I can tell you, there was, a, there was a caption on a leading news channel in India by the India Today group that says, Share cheetah liar. And the lion has got the cheetahs in India. I mean, it's nauseating. It is nauseating to the, uh, you know, to see the extent to which the mainstream media is not just being compromised, but is being used as a tool to extend the government's hate politics against Muslims and minorities. But not a single question. I mean, in an ideal world, the media in India should be asking Narendra Modi. It's been, he has been in power since 2014. We are the world's largest democracy. The Prime Minister of India has not taken a single press conference or a single question from a journalist. In an ideal world, media would have, you know, asked him and took him and media would have, you know, asked these raging questions. But we see the, the, the India that we live in, we see mainstream media asking questions of the critics, asking questions of the opposition. Uh, Indian media news channels spent three days of primetime debates on me and my family, whether we are corrupt, whether we had evaded taxes. I mean, that's the media that we are right now consuming. I mean, how do you 
stay objective given everything that you've been through? You are a journalist after all. How do you keep that objectivity? Honestly, I think Kavita, objectivity is a myth that journalism journalists need to do away with because objectivity does not allow us to define the oppressor and the oppressed. Uh, in especially in the scenario that we are dealing with, where every the media feels compelled to talk about this false equivalence about this and that, we are dealing at a uh, we are looking at a scenario. For instance, the the Delhi anti-Muslim riots uh, when when President Trump, ex-President Trump, came to India and he was in Delhi, violence broke out against Muslims following Mr. Modi's leader giving this provo- provocative. You know, a, 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 a statement that traitors should be shot dead. Traitors, of course, the insinuation was against Muslims. Um, so how do you remain objective when on one side you have the state administration, ministers, cabinet, police, judiciary, and on the other, other side you have the marginalized, the Muslims and Dalits, against whom these, uh, you know, uh, these powers are being used. And at a time like this, you see the media doing the false equivalence, you know. Um, I don't think there is space for objectivity in time of authoritarianism and at a time when Muslims in India are, are almost at the verge of ethnic cleansing. I don't see objectivity as, as a matter of pride. In fact, I, I desire that we identify the oppressor from the oppressed. And that's something, it's not just about India. It's globally uh, when we when we as journalists report from a country, it is it is disheartening to uh, to talk about India. But I think I my Muslimness does come into my reportage, and I won't deny that. I mean, when I say my Muslimness, it's my lived experience. I cannot deny my lived experience in my writings and my reportage. Does that mean um, does that mean I discriminate against the Hindu majority? I don't think. I, uh, if 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 the Indian if the Indians who criticize my reporting of Mr. Modi's politics were to just go back five years ago and see my reportage of the Congress-ruled uh, UPA government of eight years and 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 the targeting of Dalits and Adivasis and the backward classes in India, then they would not be leveling these allegations. How has social media changed the media landscape? I'm talking about in terms of reporting communal tensions, because I, I know you've talked about social media being democratizing, but it's also been used by Modi uh, with his new powers to oversee social media platforms to regulate inflammatory rhetoric, which could be argued to shut down uh, some voices. Uh, well, uh, when I said it's a democratic space, so at a time when independent journalists are being silenced by the Modi government and they are resorting to writing blogs and tweeting about what's happening on the ground. So it is a space where in the absence of gatekeepers, we are able to tell a truth that the mainstream media is not telling India. Having said that, the gov- Twitter has taken on the Indian government, has taken the Indian government to court because the Indian government has asked Twitter to take down tweets by journalists, including me. So there is an attack on Twitter as well. Having said that, uh, while in the absence of gatekeepers, there's also this fear and we uh, this legit fear that we face every day where a lynch mob, a virtual lynch mob attacks us on a daily basis to an extent that, um, I mean, it, it, it is it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming and intimidating because you go on Twitter, every word that you say is being is being used against you. And and this platform, this Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp is now used as a tool by the government, a tool of propaganda. So, yes, there are fact checkers in India who do fact checking. But by the time of fake news is used to target dissenters and journalists like me 
that fake news spreads faster than the fact-checked news that later goes on. We saw what happened in London during the communal situation in London between Hindus and Muslims, the, the role that disinformation played, as rightly put out by a BBC story about the role disinformation played in in triggering the communal tension um, in, in, in London. Well, the same situation has prevailed in India, where Hindu nationalism, along with disinformation, has played a crucial part in labeling us as the enemies of the state. The kind, I mean, I have done this experiment. Some days I just put a full stop on my Twitter. I don't even tweet anything. Just one full stop and I'll get a thousand replies. Jihadi Jane, uh, where is your burqa? Where is your hijab? I mean, so basically it's not, it's not, they're not, they are not opposing or criticizing what I say. These are people who are there who have been made to uh, see me as an enemy of the state, an enemy of Hindus in a country where 82% or 80% Indian Hindus are being made to feel like victims in their own country. Um, so we end up becoming the collateral damage. We, the storytellers, we, the truth tellers, we, the people who are bearing witness are are, are the ones who are, have to pay this price offline and online. Just to add, it, it's Leicester. I, I know you meant Leicester, not yes, London. Yes, I meant, sorry, I meant Leicester, um, sorry, yes. Yeah, I knew, I knew you did. Um, I mean, you talk right at the start about secularism, how it's it's rarely discussed, and if it is, it's a kind of pejorative word. Do you think there might be a time where the constitution may actually be rewritten. I fear that, Kavita. I do fear that the government of India might rewrite the Indian constitution and get away with the term secularism, which really haunts them. Uh, it's like it pricks them every day. It pricks the collective collective conscience of this country. That secularism, in a way, is a term that is used to appease minorities in the country. I mean, which I, I think is a myth, the greatest myth that has been sold to the country that India believes in minority appeasement. If India did believe in minority appeasement, then a maximum number of Muslim populations would not remain under underrepresented in the government institutions, in the Indian army. Uh, you, uh, the Muslim representation in across the board, whether it's the bureaucracy, diplomacy, Indian army, uh, the forces is is less than one percent. So uh, some of the uh, some of the commissions of inquiry which have been set to look into the issues of Muslims, the Sachar Committee report, which was to look into the upliftment of Muslims, um, uh, the the Sri Krishna Commission report, which was supposed to look into the genocide of Muslims in '93. If Muslims were to appease, the bare minimum that that was that would have been given to us was the justice we deserve. Muslims are not being appeased. Muslims are are being treated as second-class citizens. And whether it is the Congress or the BJP or Mr. Modi's government, they believe that secularism is a pejorative word where they want to appease Muslims. And I do fear that they are going to get rid of the term secularism so that they can legitimize their attack on the Muslim population in India. And if that is the case, what does that mean? For minorities and for the Muslim population? Well, it means everyday humiliation. It means Muslims being jailed uh, indiscriminately. As we are talking, members of the Popular Front of India, it's a Muslim organization. They are being jailed all over India in rounds of, uh, in multiple raids across the country. The enforcement directorate is charging Muslim activists and journalists with money laundering charges. Um, so what we saw um, in 2020 when the anti, uh, when the anti-Muslim riots broke down, uh, that some of the best voices amongst the Muslim community, activists and journalists who are speaking up for the community are being consistently silent. So right now we are at a space that those who actually spoke about these issues are either jailed or on the verge of being jailed or others are just have just received the message 
that shut up. You're not supposed to speak because if you do speak, you will have, uh, you know, you have, you'll have a battery of allegations. We do not have a Muslim leadership in India. Uh, uh, for a 220 million Muslim population, there are these splinter uh, uh, parties that do not actually represent Indian Muslims. There is nobody to speak for Indian Muslims in a country with, with one of the largest Muslim populations in the world. And if they do come up, then we have seen in the past how Muslim organizations have been demonized by Modi government as, as organizations that have affiliation to Pakistan, a slur that we uh, Muslims are so used to uh, hearing. Uh, but terrorism charges that are so common for Muslim activists in India. So which is why uh, Mr. Modi has consistently and uh, has has um, silenced every Muslim voice that could speak for them. So right now, um, when I was coming to Chicago, I was looking at the newspapers uh, in Delhi and there were eight newspapers. The front page of all newspapers was Muslims planning a terror attack in India, popular front of India planning a terror attack in India. Now, this media is consumed by a large section of the Indian population. And then, you know, they and then it kind of uh, validates their fears that we told you Muslims are coming to attack us. Muslims are not loyal to the nation. Uh, so this benefits Modi in 2024 elections, the general elections, um, uh, as we see, Mr. Modi, despite his failures, despite being unable to provide employment to a large section of unemployed in India, despite being unable to alleviate poverty in India, will continue to be a leader because he continues to be a Hindu leader who is the savior of the persecuted Hindus in India. Mm. So finally for me, and there are some questions and some good questions, um, Reflecting on 75 years of independence and looking ahead, um, tell me of some hope of, of how things could get better. What, you know, where is that coming from? Is that, is that a younger generation? Um, you know, I, I see how the younger generation look across the border and they want to know about their history from the other side. Um, but, you know, that there must be some good news. Well, Kavita, I've been looking for the good news for a while. I've been looking for that glimmer of hope somewhere. It's not it's not visible right now. As much as I could would want to tell you right now that there is a generation that wants peace, that there's a generation that wants harmony, that there's a generation that wants the India that our forefathers envisaged for the country. But I see that Indians are reveling in the kind of hate and dictatorship that we are witnessing right now. Yes, there is a section that is silent that might not be very vocal in its criticism of the government. It's a silent section. And I do have great hope that these people will speak up. But it's a very tiny section of the Indian population. Um, and I hope that they can continue with their optimism and um, their faith in um, in the ideals of India. But at this point of time, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a thought, thought that would be shared by others who are critics of Modi, but I do not have much to celebrate or much to cheer or hope for for the present-day India where we are headed right now because I see a very dismal picture. I see a very hopeless situation back in the country. Thank you, Rana. Um, I'm going to jump onto a question from Jane who says, why have Muslims been targeted by Modi, what is to be gained from it? Well, in, uh, if you see at all the fascist playbooks, whether you see what Trump was doing in America, when you when you tell the white supremacists that what was originally yours, the resources that were originally yours, are being taken away from you by those who do not deserve it. And that's exactly what you see in India. 
Muslims are being sold as invaders and intruders who don't belong here, who are increasing in population every single day, who will take over, who will take over India by 2050, if, if you are to believe WhatsApp. But these, this myth-making is being sold by the Indian government to, in a, to, like I said, in absence of any jobs, in absence of giving any hope to the unemployed, you sell them victimhood and that victimhood they latch on to because it gives, them, it gives them a convenient enemy. Mr. Modi has used Muslims as a convenient enemy to continue to stay in power and that's something he has done for decades now. This is Mr. Modi's brand of politics. Priyanka asks, do you think Hindu nationalism will continue after Modi or is he central to it? Well, uh, Mr. Modi and, uh, and the leaders before him have sowed the seeds of Hindu, of toxic Hindu nationalism. And uh, it won't stop at Modi because once, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing, once this poison spreads across the country, it is difficult to contain it or contain it because it's uh, this victimhood, this persecution complex that um, Indian Hindus believe they face at the hands of Muslim invaders which might be unreal, is, is, is something that has been lapped up by the collective imagination. And irrespective of Mr. Modi being around or not, this is going to fester for a long time to come. And um, yes, Mr. Modi is being an opportunist leader by using it um, to stay in power, but it has damaged. It has damaged the foundations of India. It has damaged the psyche of India. And uh, I feel we are at a stage where we might be beyond redemption. Um, Graham uh, asks, do you think India really ever had a commitment to secularism when it was founded? And if so, why did that change? Was there a moment that, that changed? Or, or, or was there? Well, yeah, it is a very good question. I always believed and it's, it's not a popular opinion. I've always believed that we have been a communal country despite the word secularism and pluralism enshrined in the Indian constitution by Ambedkar and Nehru and Gandhi, that we have been, we have resented each other. Let's face it. During the partition movement, Muslims were killed and Hindus were killed. And there was a resentment. The, the resentment was allowed to fester by nationalists uh, to use it for their opportunistic politics. At, at various stages in India, we have got glimpses of this hate uh, out in the open, whether it was the 1984 genocide of Sikhs, whether it's the 1992 attack of Muslims, this communal visuals have always existed. It has, it has just been, it has just been legitimized under the Modi government as a way of life. It has always existed. I think we have always, uh, communal politics has always been a part of the Indian landscape, Indian social and cultural landscape. For the longest time, you all of us know that. If you tell a Hindu family that their daughter or son is going to marry a Muslim, or if you tell a Muslim family that their child is going to marry a Hindu, it is not something that is still um, uh, something we agree upon to this day. So this is this is who we have been. It's just that it has been made more acceptable in the times we live in. Um, someone asked a question about Leicester and what you make of the recent violence there. Worth pointing out, it's amongst small sections of the Hindu and Muslim population. Um, do you think Hindu nationalism is a global project? Well, uh, uh, you know, uh, on, on the 75th year of Indian independence in New Jersey, uh, there were Hindu nationalists who took out a rally with the bulldozers. Now, the bulldozers have been a sign of oppression of Muslims in India, where Muslim houses are being bulldozed by the government. So when 
when bulldozers are being taken out in processions in in America, right here where I am, uh, or or in Leicester violence, where a BBC investigation um, has recently uh, 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 produced that fifty percent of the tweets on the Leicester violence came from emanated from India. There is another study recently that seventy five more than seventy five percent. of hate tweets against muslims across the world emanate from india so yes hindu nationalism that that is emanating from india this toxic um uh, toxic anti muslim politics is now becoming uh, is now spreading its wings across the world and we must be very worried is considering we are living at a time when fascists are all over europe fascists are gaining popularity all over the world so at this point of time we must be very wary in leicester hindus and muslims both in 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 small numbers were responsible using disinformation and we must be extremely worried about this right wing nationalism that threatens to destroy this the 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 communal the secular fabric of not just india but countries across what is the solution to the threat of hindu nationalism I mean and and I'd be interested also to know your take on the role of social media companies um with regard to um the dissemination that spread on social media platforms. Well, social media platforms have played a huge role in the popularity of Hindu nationalism whether it's Facebook or whether it's Twitter or Instagram. I'll give you an example earlier with these Hindu nationalists with 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 saffron flags in their dp calling themselves sanatanis they would post explicit rape threats against me and when i would call them out they would delete them now they this they send these rape threats to me and others on posts in public and when you call them out others come in solidarity with them and despite writing to twitter and instagram other platforms they are not removed in fact twitter often censors or instagram often censors or or shadow bans post when we uh, when we uh, post videos of protest in india so they have been enabler social media has been enabler of of um, majoritarian politics in india they have however in recent times tried to develop a spine where they have taken the indian government to court for when the indian government asked to take down critical tweets of mr modi So they are trying, but they have been enablers of the Modi government and the Hindutva project. Uh, Fatima asks, "What do you think Indian Muslims can do to help the situation?" I mean, you touched on on the lack of political leadership, but is there anything else that they could be doing? Well, uh, Indian Muslims should become more vocal, um, should voice their opinion. I know, I mean, right now when I'm speaking here, it's a legit fear that whatever I'm speaking here could be used against me as somebody who's trying to discredit the government or discredit Hindu nationalists. so it is a legit fear that people are not speaking up but that's the only choice you have when when you're oppressed um i think uh and i would i would i would urge muslims uh in india and abroad um that the, the a backlash to hindu national uh, a backlash to hindu nationalism by by indulging in similar violence or disinformation is not the solution um yes there is an attack on muslim values and muslims across the india and the only way to deal with this is dialogue to speak up and to try to to make sure that we do not fall in the victimhood trap that often and it's not a not a trap i i think the the of the tra- the 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 narrative of the oppressed it is very easy right now to fall in that narrative but the although i do not see the hope 
we have to live with hope we have to we have to speak up we have to speak up for the marginalized we have to um speak up for the secular values of india we have to uphold the secular values of india in india and abroad and that's the only way out dialogue is the only way out understanding and empathy is the only way out of the situation as i see it alan asks are there any indian universities that challenge the aggressive narrative of hindu nationalism which pervades academic subjects including anthropology geology of course history and politics or has freedom of thought been extinguished in those institutions too thank you for that question alan uh, in fact india's universities especially those built um, like the jawaharlal nehru university which was um, you know and 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 the jamia millia islamia and aligarh muslim university these are some of the uh, these are some of the most stellar universities in india uh, that have uh, that have produced some of the finest minds and activists and freedom fighters and these universities are now being besmirched and their activists are being targeted and jailed their students are being jailed for campus politics for resenting mr modi's hindutva project so there is yes jnu is being demonized the jawaharlal nehru university in in a recent islamophobic film called kashmir files which which is supposed to be in the genocide of kashmiri pandits but is it that film has been used to dog whistle against muslims and the center point in that film is a university like jnu which is being vilified so students and student movements in india yes they have been for the longest time universities have acted as a bulwark against hate politics but those very universities um are being silenced with their students being arrested every day what deterrent impact does disapproval of neighboring muslim countries like bangladesh or the countries of the gulf have if any do you see any external constraints on majoritarian playbook and maybe that the the constraints might include to other countries beyond muslim countries uh well if that means that the 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 criticism by the other governments of mr modi's rule i think that's rare and it has not happened except for when there was a remark by the party spokesperson against prophet muhammad that islamic countries did rise up and speak up against hindu nationalism but these are countries that are themselves complicit uh, in in totalitarianism and authoritarian politics whether it is saudis or 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 the saudis have given mr modi the highest civil in honor uh, dubai uh, dubai has uh, uh, dubai has always honored and uh, uh, given mr modi the legitimacy uh, but for the longest time i think for this audience it is important to know that mr modi was not allowed to visit america for the longest time for his alleged role into the gujarat riot so yes there have been times but uh, the united states secretary blinken has called out the anti muslim hate in india the ambassador for religious freedom in the united states has pre- uh, published a report where calling out the islamophobia in india by mr modi's government so there have been bits and pieces but not the kind of uh, uh, not the kind of uh, solidarity and not the kind one that indian muslims would expect um or indian citizens would expect from neighboring countries do you see the rise of the ambedkarit movement as a hope for a newer indian anti-fascist movement and you might need to explain what that is uh i think the ambedkarit movement uh, that which is led by people who believe in uh, in dr baba saheb ambedkar who's also seen as the messiah of people of the backward classes and caste especially the dalits who are the backward caste in india the marginalized in india every odd day you see stories of dalit students being thrashed for daring to speak or daring to uh, you know uh, sharing the kitchen with the upper caste hindus uh, so caste 
problems and caste discrimination is a reality that India cannot do away with. And whether it's the Ambedkar movement or the Periyar movement or the movement by Muslims, these are movements that one expects to be the bulwark against hate politics in India. These have been movements that have consistently stood, stood up and spoken against the tyranny of the state in the past. So I do, I do see a glimmer of hope there, yes. They have been, they have been allies of the persecuted and the minorities over the years. These things are all happening in India. We can see that people are slowly and steadily not having faith in secularism because of this government. How can we as believers of secularism work on the ground and tell people the truth of this government? How can we stop this propaganda at ground level? You, th you know, the, the, the worst part is, you know, each time I come to the United States or I go to any other European countries or that, for that matter, the UK, I see there's so little awareness of what's happening in India. People are so unaware of um, this communal program that is taking place in India. This, they, they always, for the longest time, um, the world saw uh, Modi and India as this big economy, this big development project. The economist still puts Mr. Modi on cover as the leader who believes in development. And this idea of a leader of Modi being a leader that who means development and change in a democratic India has been sold to the white West and to the European countries for far too long. So I think belatedly, though, uh, we need to let alert the world about uh, about the everyday fascism that is unfolding in the country. At this point of time, the biggest contribution that you can make to secularism is the awareness that you can create about the situation in India. I mean, when the Lester episode took place, people were like, oh, is this what is happening? Is this also what happens in India? Yet this is a regular feature of what happens in India on a daily basis. So it does not need to happen in Leicester for the world to wake up to this communal project that's unfolding in India. Um, and then last question, what do you think of the spreading of the rights among governments in the last couple of years? What is the cause for the number of right-wing governments? Well, that's something we all need to introspect, right? I mean, we are electing these people to power and we are buying into this victimhood narrative, this supremacist narrative that I think it's time for us as citizens of the world to introspect on where we are going wrong. Yes, uh, yes, Italy is electing a far-right leader. Yes, uh, yes, Paris, France is electing leaders. Yes, Europe, Europe is going the uh, the fastest way. But deep down, who are who are the people who are getting influenced by these politics? And what is this victimhood that we are revelling in? I think we need to we need to take a big reality check ourselves before blaming these leaders. There is a churn globally, and this churn I think is here to stay for a while. And there's a what is some. Uh, prospect for us as a global community. Rana, thank you for joining us from Chicago. Much food for thought. Uh, and thank you to the audience for such brilliant questions. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. 
And we also use our cutting edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.